the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. March 31st, 2021. Yesterday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said this, quote, it's not a border crisis. It's an imperialism crisis. It's a climate crisis. It's a trade crisis. And also it's a carceral crisis. But people don't want to have that conversation. They want to say, but what about the surge? Well, first of all, just gut check, stop. Anyone who's using the term surge around you consciously is trying to involve a militaristic frame. And that's a problem because this is not a surge. These are children and they are not insurgents and we are not being invaded, which, by the way, is a white supremacist philosophy. The idea that if an other is coming into this population, that this is an invasion of who we are. (coughs) Let's break this down. There's a lot here. First of all, imperialism crisis. You know what that means, right? Let's not let it slide or focus on the wrong part of her quote. Imperialism, which she calls this, has a specific meaning, the territorial, economic, geographic, and population population takeover of another land or people. It has long been a fascination and a word used by Marxist movements throughout history, but also very heavily at the United Nations. Anyone who studies land or territorial conflict in foreign relations knows the United Nations' use and weaponization of that word, almost always in order to justify terrorism or revolution. Jink Kirkpatrick was onto this game early when she wrote, quote, The struggle against imperialism pits progressive forces against any country perceived by Marxists or quasi-Marxists as an obstacle to the socialist camp. The struggle against racism asks the world's colored peoples, most of whose countries see themselves as part of the third world, to join a coalition for one more battle against white exploiters. It means replacing a colonialist or imperialist government with a progressive regime allied with the communists. It refers not to how government is organized, but to who governs, close quote. This would, of course, be why AOC also invoked white supremacy into her Jeremiad and why she went to imperialism in the first place. What can it possibly mean? It means she thinks one of two things. Either the United States has plans to invade Mexico or spread its territory from Texas to New Mexico, to Arizona, to California, southward to incursion into Mexico? If she thinks that, if she thinks there's a plan for any part of America or one of those four border states to do that, she's an absolute conspiracy theorist and nut. 
So the only other meaning it could possibly have for her to bring up imperialism as part of the border crisis is that she thinks that Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California are not the just and rightful property of the United States. And by being recognized as so, is just nothing more than an imperialist assault on Mexico or indigenous peoples. Not even the socialist president of Mexico believes this, but AOC does. Manuel Labrador Lopez never called America imperialist. No president of Mexico, to my knowledge, ever has. Oh, yes, Stalin and Khrushchev and Brezhnev did. So, too, did Fidel Castro, just not Mexican presidents. That Arizona and California and Texas and New Mexico don't belong to us and belong to Mexico is the dream palace, however, of socialists and Marxists here, thinking Arizona and California and Texas and New Mexico actually literally belong to Mexico. Guadalupe Hidalgo and Gadsden mean, obviously, nothing to AOC. But Karl Marx and revolutionary ideology does mean a lot to her. Ignore her language at your peril. Dismiss it at the expense of all American international law and history. I don't know why it's a climate or trade crisis, as she says, so I'm going to leave those charges alone as I don't think they actually mean much more than the ever-increasing cascade of nouns leftists find to throw into the class-action lawsuit against the United States and the West. Maybe I'm inventing a phrase here, with good entendres, no less. The leftist class-action lawsuit against the United States and the West. Let's write that down, Bill. Maybe that'd be a good book title. But that, in any event, is all I attribute to throwing the words climate and trade into this crisis. It helps with the poetic meter of her diatribe, but not much more. As far as her berating the use of the word surge, where she said anyone who's using the term surge around you consciously is trying to invoke a militaristic frame, and that's a problem because this is not a surge. These are children, and they are not insurgents, and we are not being invaded. She may just have the wrong defendant in the wrong court, with the wrong jury here. The first time I heard the word surge in context of our border was from Joe Biden, speaking in 2019 at a Democratic presidential primary debate. There he said, quote, I would in fact make sure that there is, we immediately have a surge to the border. All those people seeking asylum, they deserve to be heard. That's who we are. We are a nation that says if you want to flee and you are fleeing oppression, you should come. Close quote. He called it a surge. He called on them to surge. Those seeking to enter here when he is president should surge here. That was the plain meaning of what he said. And that is what he said. And that is what they did. Sorry to use the word Biden used, but you can't complain about a use of the word that your own team gave us and tells us they support, especially when you approve of the behavior involved. I'm not wedded to the word surge. I don't care that much about it, but it's your word. 
I'm happy to find another one. But stop with the linguistic lessons because you're just factually wrong. When you tell us those who crossing into the United States, quote, are not insurgents and we are not being invaded, close quote, you do not know that. You cannot possibly know that. When drug dealers set up shop in a neighborhood, it would not be abnormal to hear longtime residents of that neighborhood or peaceful residents of that neighborhood say they are being invaded by drug dealers or that their neighborhood is. Now, what say you? Not about a neighborhood and a drug dealer, but a country and several multi-billion dollar valued drug cartels. What about those who want to exploit child sex and prostitution? Is that invasive? What are the large populations who herald from Middle Eastern countries who are crossing in, like the 11 Iranians captured at the border last month? You so sure all of this is just beneficence and normal international travel? But if you do, you really show your idiocy. You say the notion of invasion is, quote, by the way, a white supremacist philosophy, the idea that if an other is coming in the population, that this is an invasion of who we are, close quote. The word invasion is not a white supremacist philosophy. It just simply is not. When Ghana complained of being invaded by Nigeria, where was the white supremacist element? When Uganda complained of being invaded by Tanzania, where was the white supremacist element? When Iraq invaded Kuwait, where was the white supremacist element? When Iraq invaded Iran, where was the white supremacist element? When Hong Kong and Taiwan complain of fear of Chinese incursion or invasion, where's the white supremacist element? There are an awful lot of stories of invasion in the Bible, which we are told does not reflect the color of white people in it. So I ask, where is the white supremacist element in all the invasion stories in the Bible? The truth is there are territorial disputes throughout every single continent, and there have been since the beginning of time. And most of them were not among or between white populations, not in Asia, not in Africa, not in the Middle East, and not in Central and South America, or among and between the indigenous None of those people are white, and those incursions and invasions throughout their histories far outpace any count of invasions among and between white populations in Europe, as if it really matters, but you're the one telling us this. Finally, the worst thing of all that AOC said here was, quote, the idea that if another is coming into the population, this is an invasion of who we are, close quote. First, where does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez think most of our illegal, excuse me, most of our legal immigrants come from? And who is the other that she's talking about? Those not from Europe, I suppose. But what is the right number of legal immigrants we should be bringing into this country every year that she says is not enough? Does a million sound reasonable in a pandemic and a down economy? Does a million legal immigrants a year from other countries sound reasonable? I think it's high, but that is our number, one million a year. About the same number all of Europe has immigrating legally to it. In other words, Europe, a continent of 50 countries, has the same legal number of immigrants that the United States takes in every year. 
And where do the bulk of our immigrants come from here in America? Do they come from Europe? No, they do not. They come from China, India, Mexico, and the Philippines. In that order. That's the bulk of our immigration. So who is this other she's talking about? She's inventing it and creating a straw man. Who ever here called any legal immigrants invaders? Nobody, so far as I know. But that phrase, quote, it's an invasion of who we are, close quote. What a slander and terrible understanding of our country. Who does she think we are and who does she think we think we are? Who is the other? If someone immigrates to a minority majority city, say Washington, D.C., is AOC of the opinion that that's not who we are? What's this who we are business? We think immigrants from Mexico or elsewhere change or invade who we are? Who are we? We aren't the woman who carjacked an Uber driver last weekend. We are much more like Mohammed Anwar, the man they killed. That's who we are. We are so many people like Ayan Hirsi Ali or Mohammed Jasser, Zudi's dad. That's who we are. We are people who never until your team told us we had to looked at race as something determinative of anything. In fact, we want it to be the least determinative thing of all. And yet you think we think otherwise while you're the one talking otherwise all the time, bringing race up all the time. Even when we say we don't see race, you make us say we do because we must, according to you. I give you the high school in Loudoun County last week, one of the wealthiest counties in America. Quoting from Fox News, taken from a lecture at a Loudoun County public school in Ashburn, Virginia, and posted on YouTube, there shows a slide with two girls, one a redheaded white girl, the other a black girl, standing back to back with the caption, what is race? The teacher asks students what they see in the picture. An unidentified student says he sees just two people chilling. Right, just two people. Nothing more to that picture, the teacher asks. Not really, just two people chilling, the student reiterates. The teacher says, I don't believe that you believe that. I don't believe that you look at this as just two people. The student replies, it truly is just two people, though, isn't it? Their back and forth continues with the teacher calling the student intentionally coy about what he should be seeing. Eventually, the student asks the teacher if he is goading him into saying that there are two different races in the picture. Yes, I am trying to get you to say that, the teacher says. The student asks then, well, at the end of the day, wouldn't that just be feeding into the problem of looking at race instead of just acknowledging them as two normal people? Make that child the president of the world. The teacher had a response. No, it's not, because you can't not look at it. You can't look at the people and not acknowledge that there are racial differences, the teacher says. In a Facebook post obtained by the Daily Wire, school board member Beth Bartz told parents that the video is from an excerpt of a high school class discussion in, quote, dual enrollment college level English, where students are exposed to different literacy theories as a way of critiquing different pieces of literature. Literature. Critical race theory was an example of a theory that can be applied, she wrote. 
Aren't you glad high schools are showing pictures of two girls and asking the students to identify what they see? A lot of discussion goes on about AOC and whether she's actually smart or not. Whatever your view, at least we can agree she got more than a passing grade in her effort of understanding dual enrollment college-level English course critical race theory. Boy, we're teaching a lot of rot. In 1914, John Alexander Smith, a professor of moral philosophy at Oxford, addressed his students as follows. Gentlemen, you are now about to embark on a course of studies that will form a noble adventure. Let me make this clear to you. Nothing that you will learn in the course of your studies will be of the slightest possible of use to you in the afterlife, save only this, that if you work hard and intelligently, you should be able to detect when a man is talking rot. And that in my view, is the main, if not the sole purpose, of education. I'm Seth Leibson. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. There's a lot to do today, and um, there's no great place to insert this, but looking at the course of the show and what I want to cover with you uh, in more depth a little bit later, I'm going to do this here. God bless these two students. I mentioned a high school student in my monologue who should be made president of the world. Uh, Listen to these two college students. Wall Street Journal asked them, is it true that Asian Americans are a social justice blind spot? Here's the answer from one Rafael Arbex Marut, who I believe is from Brazil, a student at Virginia Tech. Quote, it's not that Asian Americans are a blind spot for progressives. That the social justice business model requires perpetual victimhood. The well-being of minorities is important only so long as it can be used as a political cudgel. It simply doesn't fit the left's narrative that a minority group can succeed in the U.S. with a culture of hard work and discipline. The Biden administration dropped the Justice Department lawsuit against Yale that alleged discrimination against Asian American applicants. It isn't interested. But when a deranged gunman strikes in an attack that may have had nothing to do with race, President Biden flies over immediately to denounce anti-Asian American discrimination. This one fit the narrative. This is why it's called social justice. The modifier gives progressives the discretion to determine which groups deserve justice at which times. It's a detraction from one of the most profound thoughts ever to reach the human mind, that justice is blind. Rafael Arbex Marut of Brazil, a student at Virginia Tech, student in computer science and mathematics. He may be in the wrong major. This man should be in the liberal arts. Oh, my gosh. What a great sentiment. There's another one, too, I have for you from another student equally articulate and beautiful from the University of Virginia. And uh, I think it's best we do that when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson, and we will be right back. Oh, don't forget, we have to talk about this song.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour brings us our culture and economy update with the fabulous John Dombrowski of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. The Word on Wealth is his radio show heard here every Saturday morning at 7. J.D., happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. How How are you doing? Very good. There's a lot of money flying around these days. Yeah, just a couple trillion here or there. What's that? We just did a stimulus of two trillion. Today the president is talking about a two point five trillion infrastructure plan paid Correct. for with corporate tax increases. Right. Corporate unfold tax this increase. yeah, unfold this for me. Yeah, so um, you know, there's a couple things in here as far as infrastructure that I think I would agree with. We need to definitely make sure that our infrastructure is sound. I think everyone can agree to that. What I disagree with is how the government will allocate the funds and who's going to get these contracts. We mm-hmm. talked a little bit about this the other day, mm-hmm. how the government is not the best when it comes to spending. I don't believe they're going to be getting the biggest bang for the buck. They'll probably pass these uh, off to companies maybe that, who knows, could be a relative of one of the senators that gets the job, you know, that kind of a thing. There's a lot of... Uh, I just think things in here that could make could not work out for the best for the country, unfortunately. There's a lot of uh, that. There will be a lot of racial preference stuff. There will be an awful lot of union tilt. It's going to be, yep. well, as Grover Norquist likes to say, infrastructure is a French word for boondoggle. Yeah, 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations. Yeah. So, you know, again, the push for clean energy we all can understand uh, clean energy is certainly an option and something that's going to come to fruition over time. It just is, um, but to force it to force it like this is probably uh, again not the best idea. Talk to me. Speaking of uh, automobiles, because you know I, I'm always worried when I see a major company that we all know do something that looks. Uh, that looks uh, uh, like a warning sign or a danger sign. Ford is slashing vehicle production in North America at six plants. Yeah, yeah. Talk to yeah. me about that. Well, it's interesting because there has been a shortage of chips. And when I say chips, I'm not talking about potato chips. Semiconductor, I'm talking about yeah. computer chips, yeah. semiconductor chips, yeah. right? Uh, Intel, of course, recently announced that they're going to be building you know, some additional facilities here. They're the largest U.S. producer of, of these microchips. Um, and... In the Biden plan, there is, um, I think the amount was, uh, I forget what the amount was, but a substantial amount of the money was investing billions of dollars into domestic semiconductor manufacturing to make sure that these companies can produce what they need to in order to continue the growth in this country. We certainly don't want to be put in a situation where we've got to import uh, the chips needed in order to build the computer systems that we need to, to run all of our systems. Um, so I do I do agree with in investing in uh, domestic semiconductor manufacturing. That I agree with. And perfect example is, yes, Ford and many other uh, auto dealers out there are faced with the same problems. They're not able to get the chips that they need in order to uh, produce the vehicles. Good, John. Thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. All right, brother. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you so much. 
Very good. Steph. Securities Advisory Services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Fenrir and Tipican, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Check out the website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You can request an appointment right there for a financial review. Thank you. Thanks, Beth. John Dombrowski, you bet. Thank you, sir. 602 is the number here. And uh, stay tuned. I want to talk to you a little bit more about what these great college students are saying about uh, social justice and anti-Asian American sentiment in this country. And then I want to get into um, some interesting things about that January 6th riot you may not have heard about. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Solar Sandy, my good friend, Solar Sandy, who brought integrity back to solar in Arizona. The difference between Solar Sandy and other solar companies is that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so important when going solar, you do it the right way. And Solar Sandy has the formula. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back in pocket when you go solar. Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months, and because it's March Madness, Solar Sandy's promotion for the first 50 families, they will receive a $1,000 signing bonus. That's right, no solar panel payment, no power bill for 12 months, and a $1,000 bonus at signing. No better time to go solar with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to Ask. SolarSandy.com. Again, that's AskSolarSandy.com. I want to give you one more um, Asian college student's perspective on the question as to whether Asian Americans are a social justice blind spot, and they get into something really interesting around January 6th. So I think they're actually related a little bit. But this fabulous student, I read one student's response earlier from... uh, Virginia Tech. This one is at University of Virginia. Also a math and econ major, Zach Gelfond. The social justice movement has taken a sudden interest in violence and discrimination against my community, Asian Americans. But this interest was sparked only when anti-Asian hatred could be framed as an expression of white supremacy following the horrifying mass murder in Atlanta. The broader story of violence and discrimination against Asians is much more complex. We are taught growing up to keep our heads down and work hard. This mentality has paid off. Asian Americans rank highest of any group in standardized testing and median income. On average, we score more than 100 points higher than white SAT takers and earned around $22,000 more than white households. Unfortunately, top top universities use discriminatory tactics to make us less eligible for admission in the name of racial diversity and equity. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio attends rallies and spouts platitudes against anti-Asian bias, while also attempting to change admissions policies at specialized high schools in New York City to ensure a more diverse student body, meaning fewer Asians. Attacks against Asian Americans are on the rise, and the culprits are of many racial groups. Whites, not foremost. 
against them or among them. When Asians point out these issues with the white supremacy narrative, we are told, often by other whites, to shut up and to stop siding with whiteness. My message to Asian Americans is to be wary of the progressive movement's sudden embrace of our issues. They will toss us to the curb the moment we are no longer convenient to them. I love these guys. These guys are great. They could teach never Trump conservatives a thing or two because they understand the war here. They understand the battle. They they understand what's at stake. Part and parcel of what's at stake and the whole anti-Asian discrimination narrative is an extension, an attempted extension of the threat whites and conservatives posed to this country and posed on January 6th in Washington, D.C. That's what gives them the narrative. The January 6th right gives the left the narrative of white violence. Problematically for them, as was the mass shooting in Boulder problematic for them, problematically for them is the Proud Boys is head by an uh, African Cuban. So the notion of whiteness at play here is a bit, shall we say, strained, but nonetheless an effort by the left and the Democrats to portray conservatives and whites as the same thing, and both of them dangerous to the body politic. Here's an interesting line of stories, however, coming out of the January 6th riots that you may have been unaware of. Politico reported yesterday this. Americans outraged by the storming of Capitol Hill on January 6th are in for a jarring reality. Many of those who invaded the halls are likely to get little or no jail time. While public and media attention in recent weeks has been focused on high-profile conspiracy cases, the most urgent decisions for prosecutors involve resolving scores of lower-level cases that have clogged D.C.'s federal district court. A political analysis of the Capitol riot-related cases shows that a quarter of the 230 defendants formerly and publicly charged so far face only misdemeanors. Dozens of those arrested are awaiting formal charges, even as new cases are being unsealed every day. All righty, folks. So it wasn't thousands, as Grant Woods said in his op-ed that stormed the Capitol. It wasn't even 800. It may not have been 400. There are a total of 230 defendants. One-fifth, what's one-fifth of 230, Bill? Forty-six of which, thank you, he can do that, folks, he has that kind of brain. Forty-six of which face only misdemeanors. There are reasons for this. The reasons are, according to Politico, although prosecutors have loaded up their charging documents with language about the existential threat, existential threat of insurrection to the republic, The actions of the individual rioters boil down to mostly trespassing. This is not an editorial, folks. This is a news item in the Politico. And judges have wrestled with how aggressively to lump those cases in with those of other sinister or more sinister suspects. 
Think about that. Most of this has boiled down to trespassing. That would mean no arms or armaments or weapons. That would mean not insurrection. Not insurrection. Trespassing. Trespassing. I'm no advocate for it. I'm not in favor of it. And of course, I loathed what I saw on January 6th and said so. But trespassing is the best, the most hyped up possible prosecution you could find under a democratic administration that's trying to perpetuate fear and loathing of conservatives in this country by declaring that they're alive only because the armed insurrection on January 6th failed? Not armed. Not an insurrection. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I hope my friend Steve likes that. He's the only one that will. Uh, <laughs> David Schweikert coming up at uh, the top of the next hour. We'll get his views on um, the corporate tax hike and the stimulus plan. Uh, just a coda, if I might. And by the way, if I'm right about in, in my memory of music, a coda doesn't mean the end end. It means holding that end note until someone declares it the end. Am I right about that? If I am right about that. Coded to that story about January 6th, I read you from the Politico yesterday. Now let me give you the Wall Street Journal. The Justice Department wants to make a firm statement about the January 6th Capitol riot, which was a national disgrace. But as the criminal cases make their way through the courts, there are signs of prosecutorial overreach. Last week, District Judge Ami Mehta threatened to issue a gag order after one Justice Department official gave an interview to CBS about cases and others floated the possibility of sedition charges to the New York Times. The judge, an Obama appointee, summoned a hearing to make clear to everyone that this case should not be tried in the media. Other judges are starting to question the government's heavy-handed approach to the defendants charged with unlawful entry, but not attacking police or destroying property. The D.C. Court of Appeals on Friday clarified that the political significance of the Capitol riot does not supersede defendants' rights to due process. Quote, we have a grave constitutional obligation to ensure that the facts and circumstances of each case warrant this treatment. Gregory Katzis Gregory Katzis, another judge on the panel, said the district court described the charged offenses as grave, asserted that few offenses are more threatening to our way of life, and quoted at length from George Washington's farewell address. But none of the charged offenses is a class A or B felony, close quote. Yeah, George Washington's farewell address that the left has finally discovered. Turns out it's not criminal law or part of the federal code any more than the new Colossus poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty is codified immigration law. David Schweikert coming right up. We'll be right back. <laughs> 